Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Grace Wong, joined with my co-hosts Roberto Fucciardi and Maria Svetkova. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In the era of climate change, we've seen how greater and easier access to the Arctic has raised the questions of how Canada can better protect its northern sovereignty and contribute to relationships with its allies. In this week's episode, we will discuss some opportunities Canada can explore to expand its security capabilities in the Arctic. We will also break down what roles Canada should play in multilateral institutions that cooperatively govern interactions in the North. Our first guest is Colonel Retired Pierre LeBlanc. He is the current Principal of Arctic Security Consultants and spent over nine years in the Canadian Arctic where he commanded Canadian Forces Northern Area. During that time, he had the opportunity to travel extensively throughout the Arctic, including formal visits to Alaska and Greenland. He is the founder of the Canadian Government Arctic Security Interdepartmental Working Group, an advisory body which comprises of 11 federal departments. His long command tenure of what is now Joint Task Force North allowed him to gain a deeper understanding of the many facets of security and sovereignty in the Arctic. Here is Colonel LeBlanc in conversation with Roberto Fucciardi. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'd sort of like to start by giving our listeners a very broad overview of the security situation in the Arctic overall. And um, I would just like to know what you would say are the most pressing security concerns facing the region, and then which ones in particular you think are the greatest threat to Canadian security? Certainly. Uh, there are two levels of threat. There is a threat over the Arctic, and then a, tr- a threat to the Arctic itself. So when we're talking about over the Arctic, we're really talking about Russia, North Korea, and China. All of these nations, if they were to fire ballistic missiles towards the USA, all of these missiles would actually be flying over uh, Canadian territory before they hit their targets uh, in the south. Uh, So we have a, a role certainly to play in there. I think China is also becoming more aggressive. Uh, China, from my point of view, is becoming more and more of a bully. Um, You know, they're building more icebreakers. They're building aircraft carriers, which are power projection uh, systems. It has nuclear power submarines, and its Navy is even larger now than the uh, U.S. Navy. So instead of uh, becoming a a positive participant to the world order, China has become a bully. And, uh, you know, if China were ever to attack the USA, then as I say, the missiles would fly over the Arctic. In in terms of threat to the Arctic, uh, obviously Russia now is a great uh, deal of concern. One of the things that Russia could do is what is called an economy of scale operation against Canada. We have a station at the very tip of uh, Ellesmere Island called the Canadian Forces Station Alert. The Russians could easily take over that station, like today, for example. And if they were to do that, obviously the attention of Canadians would now focus completely 
on defense of our own country as opposed to support Ukraine operations. Uh, so the focus, the attention would shift greatly. The threat to the Arctic is also uh, should also be considered in terms of human security. Human security is a broader uh, uh, threat than just state to state. It includes pollution, uh, illegal activities, and so on. Pollution in the Arctic uh, can be an issue. Uh, so we need to be able to understand what's going on in the Arctic, what's approaching the Arctic, to be able to stop anything that goes into the Arctic uh, that may ultimately create a an environmental disaster such as the Exxon Valdez some 30-odd years ago that cost billions to clean up. In the Canadian Arctic, it would be even more expensive. The Northwest Passage is still not recognized by the international community as internal waters of Canada. The Canadian position is that the waters inside of the Arctic archipelago are internal waters over which we have 100% control. The international community says no, uh, it ties, the Northwest Passage ties two oceans, therefore it's an international strait and we have the right of, of transit. So, you know, in terms of a, of a personal experience, it's like somebody is having the right of, trans, uh, of, uh, of passage on the back of your property without you being able to stop it. So Canada has need, need to be very vigilant as to what is approaching our our, uh, our Arctic, and we must be able to uh, take a, immediate action should that be required to to stop it. And then there's the unconventional unconventional aspect of it. Here I'm talking about cyber warfare, uh, malware, impact on power generation. Uh, so Russians using cyber, for example could impact power generation in the Arctic of you know, specific communities. We can see that in Ukraine, they're going with missiles after the power generation of, uh, of Ukraine. So power generation could, in our own Arctic, be uh, at risk given potential Russian activity. So those, those broadly speaking are the two threats. Over the Arctic, really ballistic missiles, and more in the Arctic, uh, that's uh, military action against Canadian territory, pollution, um, Northwest Passage being protected, and so on. So you mentioned several different major threats, which I would like to touch on in more detail. But I think I'd like to sort of start with the more military side of things, because it seems that one of the most pressing concerns for the over and under threats would be military ones. And I'm curious to know how Canada is taking measures to uh, first internally regulate uh, these security threats. You have mentioned before, you've written some articles about the possibility of using Resolute Bay and developing Resolute Bay as a sort of multi-departmental security hub in the North. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk, a like elaborate a little bit on these benefits or the benefits of using uh, Resolute Bay and also how feasible you think it would be to establish a sort of multi-departmental security hub that various different government and military agencies could use. So one of the criticism that Canada has is that we don't have a port, a deep sea port in nowhere in the Arctic. There is a small facility being built in Iqaluit right now, which will become uh, operational in 2024. But in the very high Arctic along the Northwest Passage, we don't have anything. 
Resolute Bay sits right on the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage is not just one way of getting across the Arctic uh, archipelago. So there's seven different routes that ships can follow. Most of them go in front of or go by Resolute Bay. So if we had a facility in Resolute Bay, any party that wishes to transit or challenge the passage of the Northwest Territories would actually have to sail by Resolute Bay. The distance between pieces of land in in and around Resolute Bay is very, very small. It's about 30 kilometers. So it's very easy to do the surveillance of that area. Not only surveillance of the surface, but also use Resolute Bay as a hub for underwater surveillance, which we don't have at this time in Canada. Uh, so that's, that's one of the lack uh, that we have uh, up there. Developing Resolute Bay would allow us to deploy fighter aircraft further north than what we have right now. The, the most northern ones are uh, Inuvik on the west side and Iqaluit on the east side. Uh, but to protect CFS alert, for example, from, from uh, Iqaluit, it's about 2,000 kilometers away. Very, very difficult to, to, to support uh, fighter operation that way. So Resolute Bay would become a hub in terms of support of military operations, whether it's fighter aircraft, long-range maritime patrol aircraft, the use of drones for the surveillance of, uh, of the Arctic. Uh, all of that can be supported out of Resolute Bay. One of the advantages of developing Resolute Bay is that it would also generate uh, potential uh, opportunities, business opportunities, especially for, for the Inuit up there, and that have uh, limited opportunities. Resolute Bay one day could become a, a very significant uh, cyber uh, or electronic uh, facility. The, you know, the very large uh, farms of servers in the world use a lot of power and they have to have uh, air conditioning to reduce the, the heat that's generated by all these systems. If you were to uh, set up a uh, server farm in Resolute Bay, once we have uh, a fiber optic uh, connection, um, then the cost of uh, of cooling the system would be very low because all you need to do, obviously, is open the door, uh, especially in the wintertime. Uh, Resolute Bay could become a testing uh, center for various uh, pieces of equipment. Porsche used to try test its vehicles uh, for winter operations in Yukon. The large double-decker Airbus 380 was tested for cold weather operations in Iqaluit. And it was tested there in Iqaluit in the middle of nowhere, basically, just because in the schedule, uh, they knew that would have cold weather to be able to do the testing of, of the aircraft. There are more and more tourism uh, activity in the Arctic that would be supported from Resolute Bay, as well as science. Um, you know, with global warming, we don't fully understand what's going on in the Arctic, uh, the disappearance of the ice, the disappearance of the snow. How is it impacting the food chain up in the Arctic? So more science is required. And again, being central to the Arctic, Resolute Bay would be an excellent hub from which to operate. 
Uh, Natural Resource Canada al- already has a small operation in Resolute Bay to support science. Uh, so it would just improve the ability to do that kind of science. There are more and more sailboats coming through, as well as super yachts uh, that could uh, be maintained, repaired, resupplied uh, out of Resolute Bay if we had you know, the right facilities. That is a, a paved runway, as well as a deep sea port so that any ship that has difficulties in the Arctic, they can go to Resolute Bay uh, as a port of refuge and do whatever repairs are are required at that point. So it would sort of be, I guess, expanding Canada's presence in the Arctic, but also providing services for multiple different, uh, I guess, projects would be the best way to put it. it it's it's multi, multifaceted in its use. Exactly. The federal government would have a much better facility to provide all the federal services that are required, you know, including uh, border services. A lot of people fly into Resolute Bay for tourism purposes, and they need to be cleared by the, usually by the uh, RCMP, uh, because there's nobody else to, uh, to do it. The Coast Guard can be resupplied uh, in terms of fuel out of Resolute Bay, as well as the new Arctic offshore, the Navy uh, Arctic offshore patrol vessels that are starting now to to be deployed in the Arctic. Resolute Bay could be a, a, a great support base for both of these organizations, including Transport Canada for that matter, uh, through its uh, National Air Surveillance Program. So clearly there are ways in which Canada could sort of improve its security presence in the Arctic, uh, which also happens to be the opinion of the Auditor General's office, uh, who recently released a report. I would call it stern. I wouldn't go so far as to call it scathing, but definitely highlights a lot of, let's say, deficiencies in how Canada is responding to many of their different security concerns up north. Um, So I was wondering what area you think we should be improving on first, because there are multiple things that they list as needs improvement. And I'm wondering where you think we should specifically focus our attention if we had to pick one area to prioritize. If I was to prioritize uh, one area, I would probably go back to the development of Resolute Bay, uh, because it would provide so much capability uh, physically on the ground to be able to support all sorts of operations from a military point of view, but also from a human security point of view, because Resolute Bay being central to the Arctic archipelago would be able to respond much quicker uh, for search and rescue operations, as well as environmental response. If I had a second choice, I would focus on uh, space and the ability to do surveillance of space on a continuous basis, uh, because our systems that we have right now, we still have a radar sat two that is operational, but it's a, an older system. Uh, the radar sat constellation, which is a set of three three radars, uh, three satellite radars that can provide surveillance of uh, the Arctic from space, is a much powerful, uh, much more powerful system. But right now, it's going to come to the end of its life without, as suggested in the report from the Auditor General, without a replacement being ready to pick up the baton, if you wish, to continue surveillance of the Canadian Arctic. 
Surveillance is always key. You need to know what's going on before you can even have do something about something that's that's wrong, uh, either against our security or our sovereignty. If you don't know what's going on, you can't fix it. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because that does generally seem to be the the tone of the Auditor General report as well. Is that whatever defense systems Canada has in the Arctic for the most part are aging out of use and they are nearing the end of their service lifetime. Uh, we've seen that with a lot of our icebreaker fleets um, and other sort of, as you mentioned, the surveillance systems. How feasible do you think it is for Canada to upgrade most of these defense systems in a timely manner? And if it's not feasible to upgrade quickly, what can we do in the interim to ensure that our security is not particularly threatened while we're catching up to where we need to be? Well, because Canada is not being uh, really investing appropriately uh, for the defense of Canada and the security of Canada. And I should open a, a parenthesis here that the most important responsibility of a government is to assure the security of its people. If you look around the world, where places where there is no security, there's no development, there's no good quality of life, there's risk to life, and so on. Uh, so that, first of all, the Canadian government must do the right thing and invest appropriately to be able to uh, to maintain that very important function. Unfortunately, these systems that we are talking about, um, satellites, aircraft, uh, uh, not aircraft, but icebreakers, uh, warships, and so on, all of these things cannot be just bought off the shelf. These are expensive programs that need to be managed over a long period of time. The lead time to get a new icebreaker is in years, if not decades. And one of the problems we have in Canada is our procurement system is very inefficient. They are not capable to produce goods in a timely fashion under budget. Um, you know, to replace the search and rescue aircraft which are aircraft that are designed to save the life of people at risk. It took the government 14 years to replace the old ones. Um, the helicopter on the on the ships, on the naval ships, it was decades before they were replaced, and so on and so forth. So multiple challenges here. We need to invest more money, and we need to fix the procurement system. The, in the report of the Auditor General, it really lists all these systems that are uh, coming to the end of their life without uh, timely re replacement. Now, in, you know, in terms of trying to fill the gap, that's where we can we can maybe piggyback on our allies uh, for the use of their satellites if there is space available uh, for us to to use them. Um, and for all the various functions that will eventually stop, uh, again, use the allies to, you know, support uh, icebreakers. Uh, the uh, Coast Guard recently bought three used icebreakers and refitted them for operations in Canada. There are other icebreakers coming on, on sale right now, uh, secondhand, that the Canadian government could acquire relatively quickly. Uh, to be able to uh, to fill some of the gaps that are going to exist uh, in these various programs.
So I, I would like to talk a little bit about icebreakers then, because I find them personally quite interesting. Um, but some people who might not know as much about the Arctic might not be aware of, of their importance. But in terms of the icebreaker fleets in the world, obviously Russia has has a massive fleet, I think about 11, or they are commissioning close to 11. Uh, China is also starting to build uh, a large fleet of icebreakers. And meanwhile, Canada, our icebreakers are coming to the end of their lifetime. Um, I know we have enacted policy to sort of extend their lifetime with the idea of procuring, I believe, six uh, by hopefully the, the mid-2020s. And like you said, we are looking at also buying and loaning from other nations. Would you be able to touch a little bit on what icebreakers mean for the presence of a country in the Arctic and just how important they are to Arctic security? It is always uh, said that uh, one of the key elements of sovereignty is actually communities living and operating in the Arctic. So we have several communities in Nunavut, as well as the Northwest Territories and Yukon, uh, that are supported uh, every year through a sea lift operation that is supported by the uh, Canadian Coast Guard through their icebreakers. So all the various resupply ships that go up there to bring you know, uh, dry goods, uh, fuel, and so on, um, they require the support of the icebreakers to be able to reach the, those communities. If there isn't sufficient icebreaking capability, which is the case today, uh, because I hear every year that there is a, a insufficient amount of icebreaker service to support the sea lift. When that happens, quite often a community will not be able to be resupplied by ship, which means that that community will now have to be resupplied by air, which increases the cost of that resupply manyfold. Um, so that's one of the main functions that that the Coast Guard does in the Arctic as well as set up navigational aids in various locations. They're also responsible for environmental response, as well as search and rescue on the marine side of things. All of these are key functions in terms of uh, supporting our sovereignty in the Arctic, supporting the communities that are up there, and supporting the various activities that are taking place, whether it's you know search and rescue, uh, supporting navigation aids so that the cruise ships that, that go up to the Arctic um, can follow some of these na navigational aids. And in the future, uh, or not in the future, but right now, they're also supporting the bathymetry uh, mapping of, of the Arctic. Uh, because right now, the the mapping of the uh, the ocean bottom um, is only done to about 14% of the Arctic to modern standards. So there's a lot of risk uh, when ships operate in the Arctic and there's no accurate maps. Um, we have had already three, three cruise ships run aground in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, the last one in uh, 2018, I believe. Um, a Russian refitted icebreaker that ran aground over uh, a rocky shoal uh, that uh, they didn't uh, spot in time. We've been lucky so far that none of these accidents uh, led to the loss of life. But if one of the cruise ships was to sink in the Arctic, 
our capabilities would be stretched beyond beyond limit. And that's something I think a lot of people don't consider is that as maritime traffic increases in the Arctic, especially in places like the Northwest Passage, which Canada views as its internal waters, dealing with the search and rescue operations becomes Canada's responsibility. So I would like to talk a little bit about search and rescue specifically. You already mentioned the, the cruise ship that ran aground. We've also had incidents of uh, sailboats, I believe, during 2020. There was a sailboat who wandered into Canadian internal waters illegally because of improper navigation. How do you think that Canada is doing in terms of addressing these search and rescue needs at the moment? And I know that you said that we could very easily be strained beyond our limits. What do you think needs to be done, I guess, as soon as possible to ensure that this increased traffic is not going to cause a serious threat to our resources and a serious concern for our sovereignty? Well, several answers to that. Uh, the Canadian Coast Guard initiated a program to determine uh, specific corridors for navigation in the Arctic. So instead of being for ships to be able to go anywhere throughout the Arctic, uh, it could be limited to those corridors. Uh, the corridors are set up to have the smallest impact on the Inuit communities, as well as the eco-sensitive areas, whether it's the beluga, uh, calving grounds, or or something else. Uh, these corridors would minimize the negative impact on the environment uh, in the Arctic. Once those uh, corridors are agreed to, it also allows the uh, mapping of the seabed to be focused on those corridors, as opposed to try to map the entire Arctic. You map only uh, in, or in priority these corridors that uh, ships are supposed to follow when they go up in, in, in the Arctic. That would be one of the ways of, of improving uh, the situation up there by limiting the chance of having an incident in the first place. If there was an incident happening, uh, our capabilities are, are very limited in the Arctic. The search and rescue aircraft uh, that Canada uh, is using are based in the south, southern part of Canada. They're going to be replaced with a, a, a more modern aircraft uh, in the uh, immediate future, those aircraft have the ability to uh, search areas much better than the C-130s that we are using uh, at the moment. Uh, those aircraft are equipped with a forward-looking infrared uh, radar, which would able to uh, able them to find people or vehicles that are still powered very easily and at long distance, as opposed to just observers looking out the window of a C-130 aircraft uh, that is flying, uh, you know, relatively low, but at, still at, uh, at, uh, at very high speed. And I'll go back to uh, Resolute Bay as uh, being a hub for search and rescue air, uh, uh, services. So the, uh, search and rescue aircraft, one of them could be stationed in Resolute Bay during the period of intense activity in the Arctic. So it would be done on a seasonal basis, but it would reduce the flying time to the Arctic because the new aircraft are slow, uh, slower than the uh, C-130s. 
So if when an incident happened in the Arctic, those aircraft will be sort of anywhere between six and eight hours away from the surge zone. And if people are in the water that are very cold in the Arctic, six to eight hours, it's going to be a recovery operation as opposed to a search and rescue operation. So I think we've highlighted a lot of the issues that Canada is experiencing in the North today. Uh, There definitely seems to be a lot of deficiencies in how we're approaching our security and a lot of areas of improvement. I guess if I had to conclude with some final thoughts of yours on how hopeful you are for an improvement to the Canadian security situation in the Arctic and what you think the future will look like for us in the next 10, 15, 20 years up north. Unfortunately for our our government to take appropriate action will probably require um, an incident of a very serious nature, whether it's an in, incursion by Russian forces in the Arctic, uh, China fishing in our uh, exclusive economic zone with the support of their Coast Guard, which they have done in Vietnam, for example, or whether it's a uh, a cruise uh, ship that would sink with massive loss of life because we were not in a position to uh, first prevent the accident in the first place and then deal with it when it did happen. Once again, that was Colonel Pierre LeBlanc who joined us for a discussion on Canada's role in ensuring safety and security in the Arctic. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. Want to add your voice? Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us at beyond underscore headlines, checking out our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net, or by following us on Instagram at beyondtheheadlines. Thank you for tuning in. Our next guest is Dr. Andrea Sharon. Dr. Sharon is the Director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies an associate professor in political studies at the University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Canada. She holds a PhD from the Royal Military College of Canada in the Department of War Studies. Dr. Charon worked for various federal departments, including the Canadian Privy Council Office in the Security and Intelligence Secretariat, before beginning her academic career. She writes extensively on Arctic security, NATO, NORAD, and Canadian defense policy. Here is Dr. Sharon in conversation with Maria Svetkova. Dr. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's quite a, an honor to, to hear from you uh, today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I want to start off with asking you, in the last decade, we've seen a rise in new competitors interested in the Arctic region. Could you describe for us what this new security environment looks like and how it compares to the post-Cold War Cold War era or um, the Cold War era itself? Yeah, that's a really important question. I think after the Cold War, there was a peace dividend. Indeed, this is when the precursor to what is now the Arctic Council was was first created. The Arctic was often referred to as an exceptional zone of peace. Um, it was also referred to as being the high north but low tension. Russia, for the most part, was a very productive Arctic state and um, certainly in an Arctic Council context um, was following uh, the rules that had been set by the Arctic Council. But politically, relations with Russia have started to deteriorate. 
It sort of began with the Russia's cyber attack on Estonia in 2007, and then the war with Russia in 2008. They certainly uh, worsened when Russia was directly involved in the Syrian civil war, and then the subsequent annexation of Crimea in 2014, and especially its support to separatist movements in uh, the 2014 Ukrainian Maiden Revolution. At the same time, of course, we're always tra tracking China, and increasingly it was taking provocative actions in East Asia, especially in the South China Sea. So NORAD is this binational command between Canada and the U.S., and, and it's always been focused on, North on the North American Arctic, and especially the aerospace threats through the Arctic. Around 2011, classified intelligence reported that Russia was starting to develop a new generation of very long-range air and sea-launched cruise missiles, and these missiles could be launched deep in Russia and still hit targets in, in North America. Um, and so for that reason, and also the development of hypersonic uh, weapons, NORAD has realized that now is the time to modernize. I guess in the context of a warming climate, we've seen how easier access to the Arctic has manifested in a type of Arctic race, mm -hmm. and, in which states are attempting to, to, sink new, to stake new claims or strengthen existing ones while, while pushing these new boundaries. Um, as well as attempts to to exploit the natural resources of the north. How is, you mentioned uh, previously the Arctic Council, I want to know a little bit more about how the Arctic is currently being quote-unquote governed, mm -hmm. and can Canada and the other Arctic states continue to use and rely on these existing and uh, multilateral institutions that govern interaction in the north? So I'll maybe start with the um warming of the Arctic as a slippery slope to a race to natural resources, because I've, I've never been very comfortable with that idea. The Arctic is first and foremost an ocean, and it's ringed by five coastal states. And because of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, it's quite clear who has ownership over those resources. And to actually get to the Arctic, you have to go through um, sort of those territorial and waters um, to get to the Central Arctic Ocean. Um, via the Arctic Council, the eight Arctic states have negotiated several binding uh, agreements on search and rescue, on oil spill cleanup and also on cooperation of scientific research. And uh, a lot of people miss this, but there was also a um, agreement signed with the eight Arctic states and states like China, Japan, South Korea, and others that have created a fishing moratorium, a commercial fishing moratorium in the Central Arctic Ocean. All of these agreements still seem to be holding, notwithstanding the fact that the Arctic Council is not meeting anymore. Uh, this was a decision taken by seven of the Arctic states to exclude Russia at a time when it was chairing the Arctic Council. Um, but that also needs unpacking because... According to the Arctic Council Ottawa Declaration, Arctic states are supposed to work with the six Indigenous permanent participants and allow them input in decisions that are made ultimately by the eight Arctic states. And they weren't consulted when the Arctic Council decided not to meet. 
And so we are really concerned about the climate change in the Arctic because it's happening at about three times the rate of the rest of the world. Uh, there's a lot of talk about especially the various passages in the Arctic becoming preferred transit routes. I think that's certainly the position for Russia in its northern sea route. In an Canadian context, uh, the Northwest Passage is in internal waters, and it is not optimally set up for commercial traffic because it is difficult to navigate. It's quite shallow in some parts, quite narrow in other parts. We don't have all of the necessary navigational aids. And because of the status of the waters is internal waters, uh, it requires permission of the Government of Canada to transit the Northwest Passage. So these are all the challenges that the various Arctic states are struggling with. And now because the Arctic Council is on hiatus, we've lost a really important avenue for discussion. Okay. Follow-up question, I guess, is the Arctic Council the only body that, that deals with this sort of stuff? Well, the Arctic Council deals with or did deal with environmental protection and sustainable development. And unfortunately, because Russia, we we won't cooperate with Russia in an Arctic Council context, a lot of really important science and Indigenous knowledge informed projects have been put on hiatus. And we are going to feel that because Russia's Arctic is the largest. It is nearly 50% of the Arctic Ocean and the land territory in the Arctic. It also has by far the largest population of the 4 million people that live in the Arctic. They have approximately, you know, over 2 million people that live in their Arctic. And their uh, record on environmental protection is one of the worst among the eight Arctic states. And so... We're certainly going to feel this lack of cooperation that we have now. What's happened is that the Arctic Seven have decided that they will probably go ahead with an Arctic Council-like organization, but just with the A7 states, whether that includes some of the observers, I'm not sure. Again, we don't seem to be engaging with the six Indigenous permanent participants, and that's really problematic. There are other organizations that deal with um, search and rescue issues. That was through the Arctic Coast Guard Forum. Of course, that's also on hiatus, which is not ideal. And then there are things like the Arctic Chief of Defense Staff meeting, which we just had, and the Arctic Security Forces Working Group, which are continuing to meet, but again, without Russia. I'm not sure if this is sustainable, given uh, what a big Arctic player Russia is. Looks like we have quite the quite the challenges on our hands uh, in the next coming years. Do mm-hmm. you would you say that the Arctic region and its governance differs from the governance of other regions in the globe, say Antarctica, for example? Do do similar rules of the game apply? Are there different rules of the game for specifically for the Arctic? How how does that work? Well, on the one hand, because the Arctic is an ocean, it's it's really not different from other oceans in, in that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is quite clear about the, the responsibilities of coastal states and certainly has provisions for things like um, recognizing an extended continental shelf and the like. So in that way, is the Arctic is not necessarily different. But when you compare it to the other pole, Antarctica, It is very different because Antarctica is a continent surrounded by 
an ocean. And the decision was made in 1959 to establish an agreement with 12 original signatories, states like the United States, uh, Russia and others, that said, we will, we all agree that we will only use Antarctica for peaceful means, which means largely to do research, and especially on the effects of climate change, but not to engage in commercial uh, development activity or any sort of military activity. Uh, some have said that we need that same sort of treaty in an Arctic context, except for we really do have that covered already on the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it's also because Antarctica has no inhabitants. And so it lends itself to a treaty like uh, document in the Arctic. We have, you know, four million plus people who live there. We have many cultures, peoples represented so a treaty would really struggle with the idea of sovereignty of states and sovereignty of Indigenous peoples. Do you think there would be opportunity for more cooperation in the North, despite all this uncertainty and and uh, tensions that we're, that we're seeing arising from, from this global competition? And I guess what would it take for that to happen if, uh, if we're not seeing as much as we'd like to be seeing of it right now? So I'm a little bit concerned that we seem to be entrenching this A7 style of governance versus Russia. I think that does a couple of things. First of all, it drives Russia towards states like China. And the Arctic is so important to Russia. I do think it might be the one region of the world where we can try and convince Russia to return assuming we sort out Ukraine, but that this is an area where Russia cares deeply and has been a quite cooperative partner in the past. And so maybe through especially scientific projects and through Indigenous peoples, a start at attempting to normalize some kind of relations. The Arctic Seven working together, they always do, A, because most of them are NATO allies and all of them hopefully soon will be NATO allies. Uh, They're all Western like-minded states. So there are many opportunities for them to discuss Arctic issues without necessarily establishing a particular Arctic organization. And so I'm really hoping that this A7 organization doesn't go on too long because then we will lose the opportunity to reanimate the Arctic Council. And I think the main losers are going to be the Indigenous peoples because clearly they are the first that were forgotten when geopolitical tension means that states need to make decisions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about NORAD? What is it? How does it serve Canada's defense interests? Yeah. So NORAD, or the North American Aerospace Defense Command, is a binational command, which means that the NORAD commander doesn't think about what Canada can do and what the U.S. can do to defend North America. It is what are the possible threats that could befall North America and think about it in that sort of context. So it has three missions, uh, an aerospace warning, an aerospace control, and a maritime warning mission. 
And it was the 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 main and only source of Allied defense in a North American context beginning in 1957, because it wasn't until 2002 when U.S. Northcom was created that the the U.S. had its own combatant command with responsibilities for North America. So it's it's been our main defense, especially in an Arctic context. Uh, we often talk about how it's responsible for the 10 o'clock and two two o'clock in an Arctic context. Uh, But we now realize that threats have changed. We have threats in all domains. They can come in 360 degrees. Concentrated focus on the Arctic means that the southern approaches might be left vulnerable. The way to think about NORAD modernization is really a rethink of continental defense writ large. There are some technological upgrades we need, some new over-the-horizon backscatter radar, which will help fill in some of the gaps. But really what we're calling for is a fundamental rethink of how the Canadian and U.S. military conceive of defending the continent in Canadian parlance, um, defending the homeland for the U.S., And it's because we used to always think that the best way to defend North America was to deploy overseas and take the fight as far away from North America. That was the best way to defend North America. But we're realizing that that leaves us very vulnerable and that now with new technologies and certainly uh, longer range missiles, we can be held hostage at home. And so we can't even disembark assets from North America overseas if we're not paying attention. And so we're in what's called the era of deterrence by denial. And so what the NORAD commander, General Van Herc, is looking for is all domain awareness, which gives us information dominance. It gives us more information and options. And then we have better decision-making capabilities um, because we have more time and space to make those decisions. Finally, you're seeing an attempt to integrate the information from the other U.S. combatant commands, from the Canadian Joint Operations Command and other allies to help provide North America with the best understanding of the various threats that can approach it. Excellent. Uh, You talked about uh, modernizing NORAD, and there has been a large focus on on just that. But you also claim in uh, one of your works that this will be accompanied by significant changes to the command. Could you elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean by that? So it's not just new things that we need. We also need to make sure that we're organized appropriately so that we can in in very complex situations, make the right decisions. When NORAD was only concentrating on air threats and they didn't have the maritime warning mission, and we didn't have the technology we have now where we can be hit from basically anywhere in the world with some of the technology, uh, we've run out of the most vital variable, which is time. And if the NORAD commander is busy worrying about day-to-day air tasking orders, that doesn't allow him or her to think strategically. And if we are talking about a situation where there's a major, major crisis somewhere, 
it doesn't usually come in just one domain and one problem at a time. It's going to be multifaceted. They're usually going to be other issues uh, on the ground. You know, there may have been a snowstorm or something else. And so the military commands are going to be busy. And so we want to make sure that we're exercising that ability to do multiple things at the same time, make sure that this, the commander can be strategic in their thinking and the access to the information they have. Uh, and also making sure that maybe we collate the information and the data in a cloud, for example, and use technology like artificial intelligence so that we can see more of the patterns of activities that are happening and we can get the right information to the right people at the right time. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that sounds like we what we definitely need to be doing um, within NORAD. So given that the U.S. is our largest ally in the North, could you talk to us a little bit about our relationship with the U.S. when it comes to Arctic defense, uh, both within NORAD or NATO or any other um, uh, organization? And what what is the nature of this relationship and how may it be evolving? That's a really important question. And I it, we, we're really trying to change the thinking on how we think about especially defense of the Arctic. For many, many years, um, the biggest problem was that the U.S. was routinely forgetting it was an Arctic nation. It sort of forgot it had Alaska and responsibilities in the Arctic. And it has three combatant commands, all with areas of responsibility in the Arctic. So trying to understand who is the lead in an Arctic context has been a bit puzzling for allies. But what we generally defaulted to was that NORAD did stuff in North America, especially in the air domain. And NATO will take care of things, particularly in a maritime domain, because we have Norway who is, you know, at the mouth of the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap, where the Russian fleet often um, exercises. We're now realizing that, you know, that does not take advantage of the fact that we have allies. And so we're starting to integrate exercises, missions and information between NORAD and NATO. I'm hoping we're going to get to the point where, too, we strategically message and link the various Arctic exercises. So the U.S. will have Arctic Edge happening. Canada will have Operation Nanook. NATO will have cold response um, happening. And that will actually link them together so that we can maximize the capabilities that we're practicing. The U.S. Uh, military, too, has been conducting what they call guide exercises, global information uh, dominance exercises, which is really about linking what's happening in other combatant commands and the information that they are seeing and making sure that they don't forget to think about the North American context. The NATO uh, had a foresight document looking at threats to the Arctic and, and situation in the Arctic out 25 years. And I think it's the first time that a NATO document has actually specifically mentioned NORAD. So this integration seems to be happening. The other thing is we've stood up two new commands. The U.S. Second Fleet was stood up in 2018, and that commander is also the commander for the Norfolk Command, Joint Command, which is the NATO Maritime Command to look at the North Atlantic and the Arctic. So 
certainly there there seems to be more integration happening. I do not take this to mean, however, that we're going to have NATO operating in a North American Arctic. It's going to be the case that NORAD will continue to be the main alliance for North American Arctic security, but certainly sharing and coordinating activities between NORAD and NATO will see far more of. So we did talk a little briefly earlier about Russia and in light of the Russia-Ukraine war that's happening right now, I know our listeners are quite eager to hear what your your thoughts on our, our relationship, Canada's relationship with Russia, and as well as how perhaps the new Russian strategic doctrine or these updated weapon systems are affecting the way NORAD is conducting its uh, operations and, and everyday business. Yeah. Well, certainly we're we're really concerned and a lot of Canadian attention is on how best to support Ukraine without pulling directly NATO into the fight against Russia, because that then creates the conditions for a slippery slope to to potentially World War Three. NORAD continues to evolve because of the technology that Russia is developing. It in the US national security strategy, Russia is named as the persistent proximate threat while China is sort of the long-term pacing threat for the United States. I think however, I understand the compunction to completely cut off Russia from all sort of activities, but I think we should learn a little bit more from for example the US Coast Guard's 17th district and from Norway that managed to keep very practical relationships with their Russian counterparts to make sure that, for example, there is still safety at sea, that there's still an emergency phone call to phone. Because I think in these tense geopolitical times, we are an accident, an incident, or a misperception away from things escalating really quickly. And so I think it's really important that we don't cut off all relations with Russia. I think they're very important issues, especially as we come into the summer shipping months, like search and rescue, like oil spill cleanup. We don't help anybody by not working together on something like a big oil spill cleanup just to show Russia we won't work with them. That's not smart thinking. So it's finding those avenues that are appropriate to work with Russia to make sure that people and the environment are safer, but without signaling any sort of their activity in Ukraine is somehow justified or we're forgiving them for that egregious behavior. I mean, they are committing international humanitarian law crimes. They will need to take full account of that. That being said, we do need to make sure that shipping is remains safe and Russia has a part to play in that. I really like that we are an accident or a misperception away. I think that really uh, puts it quite succinctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have one final question for you. This one, I'm going to just leave it very open-ended. So feel free to take it in whichever direction you want. But I just like to know what are some of the things that Canada is doing or perhaps should be doing to ensure that it's responding appropriately to Uh, such a changing circumpolar world? Well, I think that's what the seven Arctic states are, are, are sort of struggling with. How do we open space for Russian cooperation that makes sense without signaling that their bad behavior in Ukraine 
we're forgiving. I think we have to take a lesson from past experiences and and think about uh, what is in Canada's national interest, uh, working with allies, continuing to exercise together so that we maintain our Arctic capabilities. I do worry every once in a while that Canada can slip back into what Dean Acheson said of us, uh, and he sort of used the Wordsworth poem, Ode to Judy. And he said, you Canadians are like the stern daughter of the voice of God. You tend to finger wag and tell the world what to do, but you're not prepared to do it yourself. So I would like Canada and the six other states to go back to first principles. The Arctic Council has been extremely successful because it focused on environmental protection, sustainable development, but it always included the six Indigenous permanent participants. And we're forgetting them. And we have obligations under the UN Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And ultimately, we need their Indigenous knowledge if we are going to have any kind of success trying to mitigate things like climate change uh, and understand uh, the changes that are happening. So I hope that Canada doesn't fall back into that old role of simply finger wagging and telling others what to do, but focuses, for example, on its duty and responsibilities to rights holders in Canada's Arctic and recognize that climate change is an existential threat. The U.S. has actually put that into their defense policy. We need to do the same and need to work to find ways to to reach our climate change goals because we really are at a point where we may be beyond the point of no return. Once again, that was Dr. Andrea Sharon who joined us for a discussion on Canada's role in multilateral organizations governing the Arctic. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Colonel Pierre LeBlanc and Dr. Andrea Chiron. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss Canada's role in Arctic security, both within its sovereignty and with other Arctic interest states. Today's show was produced by myself, Grace Wong, alongside my co-producers, Roberto Fruciardi and Maria Svetkova. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.